Hello. I nearly said welcome. <laughs> Don't clap till I'm done, hey, you never know. Um, I'm so used to meeting leading, I'm like, welcome everyone. Oh, no, wait, I, okay, hello. We've already been welcomed, and now I'm here and I get to share a message. I'm very excited. If you don't know me, my name is Jane, part of the leadership team here at Common Ground, and my husband, Mike, and I are actually employed by Common Ground. We oversee the Next Gen ministry. So from 0 to 18, we give oversight to that space with a specific interest in the Kids Rock area, which is 0 to grade 4. So if you don't recognize me, it's probably because round about this time, I'm across the parking lot, I'm in the kids' own playground, doing very important work. I'm either pushing a swing, I am helping a child from one side of the monkey bars to the other, which is very difficult. You think that's easy, that child is going backwards and forwards, it's, you don't want them to drop. Um, or I am doing a lesson for the three and four-year-olds that has to involve something like singing, actions, Barbies or some sort of props to keep them engaged. I'm hoping just me being here will be enough for you guys today. I also field many questions, things like, so where does my dog go when he dies? So I feel a lot safer up here preaching than having to answer questions over there. One of the perks of the job, I got this cute Chelsea bun picture from one of the kids today. How sweet. Thank you to Anna. I asked her if I could eat it. She was like, it's paper. (laughs) Sorry. I'll put it on my fridge. I won't put it in my fridge. So really, yeah, we do love working with kids, but I also think it's such a privilege that I get to be here today. So thank you, elders, for having me and allowing me to preach. So let's get into this message for today. This is our last week looking at the book of Mark, guys. It's been two years, and we've made it. Can I show you a visual example of how long it's been? I've got a picture. I've got three kids. My youngest daughter, Hannah, was born in January. On the left, I found a photo from the first week that we had a Mark sermon. I'm sorry for everyone on this side. Um, You can't quite see. She was three months old over there, and that's around about the time we did our first Mark sermon. On the right there, she is talking, walking, attitude for days. That is how long it has been since we have been doing the book of Mark. We have been thorough. A child has grown in this time. Uh, So we've, and we've loved it. Hasn't it been amazing to really do a deep dive into one of the of the books of the Bible? We've gone all the way up. I'm going to be focusing in on chapter 12 and an interaction that happens there. Uh, Josh preached into chapter 13. And then actually the death and resurrection of Jesus we looked at in detail around Easter time. So at the end of today, we have done the whole book of Mark as a church. I'm very proud of us. We've got quite a clear sense of who Jesus is, right? The book of Mark has been very clear. In verse 1, I love that it starts like this. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then, do you know, Mark never says that again. He chooses rather to reveal it to us in every story and interaction that we get to read. And we've seen many wonderful things. Jesus has healed people who were sick. He's cast out demons of people who had been tortured for years. He has done miraculous things. He's fed 5,000. He's walked on water. We've seen beautiful conversations that he has with other people where he really does reveal his divine revelations and his wisdom, including two weeks ago, Ian preached on his interactions with one of the religious leaders where they spoke about how loving God and loving one another are the two most important commandments. And then last week, Joshua gave us insight into chapter 13 where he preached into God's, well, Jesus' prophetic message of the end times and what that might look like. He has entered into Jerusalem on a donkey amidst shouts of hallelujah and hosanna and palm trees being waved. He is growing from power to power. 
And we mustn't forget that in the background, there's this growing tension. You see, the religious leaders of the time, the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't particularly like Jesus. They've been watching him and waiting for him to slip up. They've been putting him in situations where they question him with really difficult questions, trying to trip him up. They want to incriminate him. They want to find a way to get rid of this guy once and for all. And yet, how frustrating. Every time Jesus answers their questions with great insight and clarity, and it infuriates them even more. And then there's another element. There are the crowds who have been watching and following, and they're starting to think, maybe this guy is who he says he is. If you are someone who's watching for the first time, if you're at home watching online, if you're here in the venue and you're thinking, I'm not, I'm not sure yet, is Jesus who he says he is? I hope that this message can be helpful in just giving you a bit more insight into who Jesus says he is. So this week we're focusing in on chapter 12, one last interaction that Jesus has with the scribes and the crowds. After this moment, all the other stories that are captured in Mark up until Jesus' death are in private. They're in people's homes amongst friends. These interactions happen one after another. They are in the temple. It involves Jesus' teaching, and there are three things that we're going to be looking at. Jesus corrects the scribes when they present an incorrect reading of Scripture or a not complete reading of Scripture. He condemns the scribes for some of the hypocrisy he sees, and then he commends a widow for her faithful offering. Throughout these verses, we see that Jesus looks at people's motives. He sees right through them, through the charade, and he sees who they truly are. And as I've been preparing for this message, the Holy Spirit's taken me back again and again to a verse that's found in 1 Samuel 16. The context for it is the prophet Samuel. He has been told that he needs to anoint a new king of Israel, and he needs to go to Jesse's house, and he will find the new king there. So he arrives at Jesse's house, and he says, bring out your sons, I need to meet them. And they all come out. They are legit. They are strong. They're powerful. They've got charisma. He's like, surely any of these could be king. And God says, no, no, no. He says, man looks at outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then he calls David, the youngest of all of Jesse's brothers, really the least likely to be king. And God says it's him. That's the one who will be king of Israel. And we know what a great king he does become. You see, the heart, what happens on the inside, is so much more important than what happens on the outside. And yet in our world, we live that life so differently. You can choose the photos you put on Facebook. You don't find many photos of screaming children, happy, smiling children. Yes, there are loads of those photos. But children who've messed all over the house, you don't get those pictures. There's a filter if you don't want to wear makeup. You can take a photo and it looks like you wear makeup. It's, it's crazy the things they can do to your face when you just put your camera in front of you. We change ourselves completely, don't we? We judge books by their cover, let's be honest. When I go to the library, I'm looking for the one that, oh, that one stood out to me. We judge Netflix series by the pictures that we see at the front. Swipe, 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 mm, that one looks interesting. We're very careful about letting people in. And so we create an image of what we look like, a reputation about who we are. And it's very difficult for people to get through to the heart of it. So... It's a countercultural thing, to be honest, and to show who you truly are. It was countercultural back in Jesus' day, and it is so today as well. 
So let's see how this truth plays out in the passage that we're reading today. Steph, I'm going to call you up to do the reading for us. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. I'm reading to you from Mark 12, verses 35 to 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he calls his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Great. Thank you, Steph. Let's get straight into it. So we start with Jesus. He's teaching in the temple, and he speaks to an incorrect understanding of the Messiah. So um, in that first part that we were reading, and Jesus is correcting, it speaks to Psalm 110, and it quotes an aspect of that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, the scribes are saying the Messiah will be the son of David, the same David that we heard about in that Samuel story, Jesse's son, the great king. Now, this isn't wrong in and of itself, it's correct, and it's speaking to lineage, which is very important in the Bible. Quite often we see that when someone arrives, they say, this is son of, son of, son of. It's important. In Judaism, the ancestor always outranks the descendants. And so often the ancestor will actually represent those that come after them. That would mean that the coming Messiah would be of the line of David and that the Messiah would be a significant figure, but potentially he would be a man, no more special than David. David is honored in this description. His attributes of greatness and power and authority would be bestowed on the Messiah. I'm often called my mother's daughter, even at this age. My mom and I, we look alike. We're very similar in temperament. We do a lot of the same things. We have the same mannerisms. Um, In a family of loud, emotional fighters, at the dinner table, we are a sea of calm, which is very needed. And so when someone calls me my mother's child, I am so proud to be called that. I think my mom's amazing. She's one of my heroes. And I love that I get to be associated with her. This is what the scribes are suggesting, that the Messiah would be so proud to be called a son of David. But Jesus takes this statement and goes into a deeper understanding of it. He's highlighting the fact that 
David himself will call the Messiah Lord, as seen in Psalm 110. He's elevating the Messiah to something higher than the scribes are getting at. Yes, he would be from the line of David, but he would exceed David in power and authority and majesty. Jesus is saying that he can't be defined as merely a successor to David, even though he is descended from David. He is, in fact, David's Lord. Romans 1 verse 3 to 4 describes it like this. Who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who the spirit, through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Kim Riddlebarger says it like this. Jesus is not only a biological and legal ancestor of Israel's greatest king and is therefore truly David's son, but Jesus is also that Lord to whom David had been speaking. This means that Jesus is both son and Lord, both man and God. This moment of teaching in the temple showed great insight and understanding. I love how at the end of the verse it says, the crowds heard him gladly. Another translation says, they are delighted to hear the truth revealed. Isn't it true when you hear truth, you're delighted? You can, you can hear it, you can sense it, you know there's something right about this. I know it to be true. Jesus had taken the scribe's view of the Messiah, quite a superficial reading of the scriptures, and said, yeah, he will be a son of David, and then... Jesus focuses in on the heart of Psalm 110. Jesus would be Lord over David. Let us pause and consider. Where am I looking at Jesus at face value and not searching for the deeper truths that can be found in Scripture? Is there an incorrect understanding of Jesus that I'm holding on to for my own comfort? Do I maybe need to let go of it? Have I tried to get Jesus to fit into a box? He just doesn't fit into it. He disappoints me all the time. Maybe he's not supposed to be in that box at all. And maybe you're one of the people asking, well, is Jesus who he says he is? What a beautiful verse to go through. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies that he would be descended of David, and then he reveals in a beautiful way that he will be higher than all earthly rulers and kings, greater than David. You see, the scribes' expectations of what Jesus should look like, this Messiah, he should be a political conqueror, he should be an earthly ruler, it meant that they missed Jesus right in front of them, the servant king who comes to give up his life to free us all. And their assumptions mean that not only do they bypass Jesus, but they kill him, the very one they are longing for. Is there a way that we're looking at Jesus that we actually bypass who he truly is? It's so good for us to consider, Jesus, who are you? Won't you reveal that to me? I want to know you, not the person or the God that I've created in my mind, as if I could even seek to understand that. So Jesus has revealed with great insight and clarity the truth of who he is. And then he goes on to tell the crowds to beware of the scribes. Guys, this is getting juicy. You're... He's, he's not happy with them. This same story can be found in Matthew chapter 23, and he has a long list of grievances that he sets out against the scribes. Now, in the Mark story, he highlights three things that he is upset about. He condemns these three things. It's 
their pride, their greed, and their hypocrisy. So let's start by looking at their pride. So it says that the scribes like to walk around in long robes, and they like greetings in the marketplaces, and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at a feast. Now, most people of the time would have worn robes, but they would have been quite plain robes. They most likely would have gone just above their ankles so they wouldn't get dirty. But Jesus is speaking to the fact that many of the scribes would have had long robes that they walked around in. Now, men, you don't get the pleasure of walking around in a long, flowy dress these days, but the ladies know what I'm talking about. When you walk around in a long, flowy dress, you don't just walk. It feels wonderful. It's kind of a show. You strut a little bit, and it like goes past your legs. So can you imagine the scribes as they're walking? It's a show. They're not just walking. They're not just going to get their food. They are strutting a little bit. And they would have had robes with tassels on the end. So in the book of Numbers, it said that you should bind tassels to the end of your robes as a reminder of Moses' laws. But these tassels that the scribes wore were excessively long. They were for show. They were a pretense that implied righteousness, but actually it revealed their pride. The best seat in the synagogue where the scribes would sit, it's right at the front, so there would be the Torah sitting, and then there would be a seat, and that's where the scribe would sit. And then everyone else is sitting and listening under God's word. They are learning humbly, where's the scribe? He's watching you as you listen and you learn. He's not listening and learning. He's not sitting humbly under the word. Can you imagine being right in the front and your nose is itchy and you're like, I can't do anything. This guy's right in front of me. He's going to watch me. He's watching you. He's not learning. What about the best seat at a feast? When you go to a wedding, you've got to find the seating chart. Now, where am I? What? Table 12? I thought I'd be closer to the main table. The scribes didn't have to do that. You see, if a scribe were to come to your feast, it was a great honor. And so you would have reserved a place at the head table for them. So when the scribes walk in, they go straight to the front. It reminds me of a parable Jesus tells. It's found in Luke 14, verse 7 to 11. He says, You should not take the place of honor at a feast, because what if a more distinguished guest arrive? And then the host has to say, Would you mind sitting somewhere else? You're in the wrong seat. He says, Rather sit at a lower seat. And if the host choose to move you to a higher seat, then you're honored in front of everyone. Jesus is speaking to the presumption of honor assuming that you should and will be at the head of the table, which is exactly how the scribes acted. This contrasts completely to the teachings of Jesus, that we are to be servants, that the first should be last, and that our humility should come before our honor. After speaking of their pride, he moves on to their greed. The scripture says that they devour widows' houses. Now, obviously, this is figurative. There are no men walking around eating buildings, but it really does speak to an insatiable appetite for more, 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 more. Scribe services were given freely at the temple, but quite often people would trade with the scribes. I'll give you offering money or a meal, and then you would present a sacrifice on my behalf, or you would pray for me. When Jesus speaks to the scribes devouring widows' houses, he's revealing how they would extort the most vulnerable in society. Not only would they take money from widows, but Jesus is saying they take their very homes, implying that a widow's security was at risk because of the scribes' desire for more. 
And then Jesus speaks to their hypocrisy. For a pretense, they make long prayers. So the word pretense is from the Greek word prophasis, which means for show or with a false motive. They are praying long and beautiful prayers, but they don't mean a word of it. Matthew 23 verse 28 describes them as whitewashed tombs, saying on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Remember Ian preaching two weeks ago, that conversation with the teacher of the law when they got to the the nugget of truth that the most important command is to love God and to love others. And yet the scribes are living as if the ceremony of the law, following it to the detriment of other people, is more important than justice or faithfulness or love. They prey on the widows for their own gain. And then they pray for the widows in front of everyone. This is a complete contradiction. What is happening here? You see, Jesus is pointing to the fact that the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law are following religious rules to a T, but they don't have relationship with the God who gave them the very laws they are following. They do not know God. They do not love him, but they use his rules to manipulate and twist to serve them. External conformity to the law, it's not enough. It needs to change you from within. They are being very good, but they are barren of goodness. There's a real danger in reading your Bible, praying prayers, following God's rules, and not believing a word of it. Following God is not a way to become a better person or to get things more right. The Pharisees used religion as a way to puff up their reputations. They, they looked better if they followed the external markers for success in faith without letting God change them from within. Maybe they could look all right. And let's be honest, we can be the same. We can do church. We can do quiet times. We can pray our prayers, but we won't let Jesus in where it really matters. What's beautiful is that we think if we do the right things, we can be righteous. And Romans tells us that is not the case. In chapter 3, it actually says no one will be declared righteous through works of the law because the law highlights the facts that we are sinners. We all get it wrong. And in fact, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. When we comprehend that we can never get it right, try and try and try, you will always fail. We come to realize that we need a savior. And that's where Jesus comes in, the Messiah. Remember, the scribes were expecting an earthly king, a conqueror, and yet he comes as a servant, as a teacher, as a friend. And he dies on a cross as an offering to our God so that when we come to God, he forgives us and justifies us and allows us to be in relationship with him. It's not about us and what we do. It is all about Jesus and what he has done for us. So just when you think, you know what? 
I'm doing pretty good. I'm not like those guys. I don't go around eating widows' houses. I'm not a proud person. I feel like I'm quite humble in myself. My prayers are very short. Don't you worry, Lord. They're not going to be long. There won't be long prayers for pretense. Like, I'm going to be okay. And then the widow comes, and she knocks us off our high horse. You see, the scribes help us to go, oh, I'm not like that. It's fine. I'm not like that. I'm going to be okay. But the widow arrives, and we see her story, and we realize, whoa, I'm not like that either. So let's see what the story says. So Jesus has taught in the temple. He's rebuked those scribes thoroughly. He must be tired because he goes out into the temple courts and he sits down to have a breather. And he and his disciples sit opposite the treasury and they people watch. Honestly, I've never related to the Bible more than this moment. I love people watching. It just makes so much sense. It's so human. My daughter, Emma, and I, when we're on the beach, we just sit and people watch. Put me in front of a towel, Glasses on, and I just I can watch people for hours. My daughter, she's not as inconspicuous. She like stares at people. But it's so interesting to watch people. Don't we love it? So I want you to imagine it. It's most likely an area of the temple called the Court of Women, and there would have been 13 different offering boxes all around designated for different needs and opportunities to give, maybe sacrifices or mercy offerings or free will offerings. Each box would have had a metal trumpet at the top. I think there might be a picture so you can kind of imagine it. At the top where you'd put your money in, and these offering boxes were often called the trumpets, most likely because of the metal. When you put your coin in, it makes a noise when your money goes down. So if you're going to people watch, what better place than the court of women during Passover week where there are many visitors to the temple bringing their offerings? Can't you imagine the disciples? Oh, that lady has just walked in. She's got really nice new sandals. What do you think? Our offering's going to be a lot, a little. What do you think? Whoa, that was a lot. Did you hear the clanging as it went down? Okay, you were right. Well done. Okay, next guy comes in. Very nice new robe. Let's see. One measly tinkle. I don't think he gave enough. I see what he's wearing. Oh, long flowy robe, tassels. Must be a scribe. Let's watch. Let's watch. Cling, 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 cling. That's what I expected. It's a lot. And then who would walk by next but a widow? The very same person that Jesus speaks of when he's teaching, the widow who is devoured by a scribe's greed, she arrives. Do you think the disciples even play this guessing game with them? They know it's not going to be a lot, right? And it really isn't. The Bible says she puts in two small copper coins. Some translations call it a mite, which means thin or tiny. If we were to try to understand the amount she gave, and honestly, maths is not my strong point, so just take the heart of this. If a day's wage was 1,000 rand, she gave 16. It's not enough for you to get bread and milk at the shops today. In fact, you probably have that amount of money in your car right now for the car guard. It's not even enough to store in your wallet. So just as the disciples have lost interest in their game, Jesus calls them over and says to them, truly I say to you, and that's when you know he's saying something important. This poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Mind blown, right? It's God's upside down kingdom in play. They have seen so many rich people come in and put large sums of money, but it's the widow who puts in two small coins that Jesus commends. Now, Jesus is not saying, yeah, we don't like it when rich people give us lots of money. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, the Bible says that God loves when we give generously and cheerfully 
to his plans and to what he is doing. But what Jesus was doing, and he's doing it for us now, he's challenging the way that we see and we think. The disciples judged the rich as greater than the widow because of the amount of money that they gave. But Jesus says it's the widow's sacrificial heart that pleased God. It's an issue of proportion. So my daughter Rachel, she's in grade four, and she's learning fractions. And so when you've got two fractions that you need to compare, there's a sign. I don't know what that sign is, but we call it the crocodile when you're learning fractions because you put little um, teeth there, and the crocodile always wants to eat the larger amount, right? So let's put it up. The rich man gives one out of 100. The poor widow gives one out of one. Even Rachel can tell me which way the crocodile will face. You see, the rich gave what they would never miss. The poor widow gave what she couldn't afford. When Jesus says she gave all that she had to live on, that word live is from the root word bios. It means that which would sustain her or her food for the day. It's the difference between a takeaway coffee or breakfast, lunch, and supper. Aren't we reminded of the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and the widow that he meets? God says there will be a widow that will provide a meal for you. And so he finds the widow and he says, please, can I have some bread? And she says, I only have a little flour and a little oil. And when it's done, my family will starve. I have nothing else. And Elijah says, make the bread. And in faith, she does. And God blesses her obedience and her faith by ensuring that her oil and her flour never run out again back to the widow in the book of Mark, and we don't know her backstory quite like the widow that Elijah interacts with. We don't know what happens to her afterwards. We don't know if she has family who will look after her and care for her. We don't know if she has an opportunity to get more money later on in the day. We don't know if she leaves with nothing, and that's it. Jesus is not commending the amount that she's giving. He's looking at the sacrificial faith that it shows. Now, whether or not it's wise to give everything that you have is probably a sermon for another day. I'll let Ian preach that one. Um, But there are two things that I want to highlight out of the story of the widow's offering. Firstly, the widow really seems to have a true understanding of who God is. Alpha, Omega, Almighty Creator, Jehovah Jireh, her provider. He has made her and he has sustained her. All that is created is by his hand. Everything that we see is his already. And so she returns what was his all along. She has a true awe and reverence for God. She puts him above everything in her life. Money, food, possessions. How do we know that? Because she gives it all to the worthy God who deserves it all. And then she shows such true faith in God as her provider. She leaves with nothing. She leaves with nothing, trusting that God will see her through. The others give of their extra. There's no reliance of God. They can leave, and they have plenty still. The point of the story is that the widow willingly gives to God all that she has, trusting that he will take care of her, as opposed to the rich who contemplate just how much they can give without being inconvenienced. She leaves showing faith that God is her provider, and he will meet all all her needs. She is all in. She has seen who God is, and she's decided to give her all because of that. 
the scribes have given for show. It's more about them and their reputations. Look, I'm a good person. I'm generous. I do what the law says. As opposed to the widow who gives out of great dependence of God, on God. I don't have enough, but what I have I'll give to God. This reminds me of a story I read in my preparation for this sermon about a missionary named Nick Ripkin who lived in South Africa around the time of apartheid. Uh, He was American, and he went on a mission trip to Lesotho, to a very poor and impoverished community. He had asked his American church back home, would you take up an extra offering for the people in Lesotho that I could bless them with that? And they managed to raise $10,000 as an extra offering. When he told the community in Lesotho that there was $10,000 for them, they freaked out. They couldn't, they'd never heard of that amount of money. It was insane to them. In fact, he speaks of two to three hours of singing and dancing and praising and worshiping when they heard the donation that had been given. They were overwhelmed with gratitude and praise to God for this beautiful gift. While everyone's praising, he noticed that there's one old woman who was too old to dance, too frail, but she takes out a handkerchief out of her blouse and she unwraps it and she reveals a coin and she slowly went up to the offering table and she put her coin on the table and then she went and sat back down. Now, obviously, his curiosity is piqued. Even I'm like, what is the, what's going on there? And so he asked the translator, won't you go and ask her what just happened? And the translator comes back and says, that's her retirement money. It was given to her many years ago by a British man, and it was worth a lot. And she has kept that so that in her old age she will be looked after. But she is so moved by the sacrifice of the American churches and so in awe of God and his faithfulness to the church that she's decided to give up everything she has on the offering table. And so Nick goes to the offering table to check it. It's a half penny. And little did she know, half pennies had actually gone out of circulation many years ago, and so that coin was worthless. She didn't know. It meant everything to her, but she gave it to God. Isn't that like us? We hoard and hold on to things that we can't take with us into eternity. Money, possessions, fame, reputation. These are worthless when we get to heaven. They don't matter And when we have clarity of insight into who Jesus is and what he gave for us, it changes the way that we think and act. It makes things that seem really important to us not so important anymore. Tim Keller says, the more you understand how your salvation isn't about your behavior, the more radically your behavior will change. When we look at the scribes and the widow, they both need Jesus. The difference is that only the widow truly believes it. So in conclusion, we've looked at this passage, chapter 12, the book of Mark, and we've been reminded and challenged by Jesus ourselves. We're reminded that Jesus is who he says he is. It's revealed in scripture. The book of Mark reveals he is Messiah. It shows us again and again in his interactions with others, and it ends with his death and resurrection on the cross, the final unveiling of God's good plan to reconcile him to reconcile us to him. So what does this mean for us? 
when we're faced with a God who put it all on the line to redeem us, how do we respond? And really, Jesus went all in. No one else has given up so much for you. He's died in our place. He's granted us forgiveness. He's gifted us reconciliation. This is the gospel we believe. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says it so well. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The widow believes it. She believes it with her whole heart, and you see it in her actions. The scribes, they act it out, but the inner thoughts and motivations, they don't line up. The scribes and the widow are a great mirror that we get to put up to ourselves. And so I have some questions to ask you as I've been asking myself this week. Where am I doing something for show? Is there any ingenuity or pretense in my life? Have I let greed or pride or hypocrisy sneak in and notice and grow? Is my reputation, who people think I am, the outside appearance, more important to me than Jesus sanctifying and growing me into his likeness? I find myself more often than not relating to the Pharisees in these exchanges, not the people he interacts with. And so when we ask these questions to ourselves, and let's be honest, the Bible said we all fall short of the glory of God. There's none of us going, no, I've passed this test. We don't. That's the truth. We don't. What do we get to do in response? We get to repent and believe. We get to repent when we see that actually there are aspects of my life that are not in line with what God's calling me to do, with what he wants me to do, what he's commanding me to do. And we get to truly believe and grasp hold of the truths that Jesus is who he says he is. We can realign our perspectives again, right? We put God at the center, at the head, our king, our savior, and we put ourselves in our right place under God's feet, humble, worshiping him, grateful to all that he is and all that he's done for us. When we do this, we become more and more like the widow. We get to live out a sacrificial life that shows us offering ourselves to God because of all that he's given us, not because it'll make us look good, but because we love God and what he's done for us. And so we won't always measure up to this world's standards. We live in the upside-down kingdom, right? That's what we've learned in Mark, where sometimes less can be more, where sometimes a widow is honored high above a leader, and where what is inside and what's happening within you is more important than what we see on the outside. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder of truth today in your word, that Jesus, you are who you say you are, that you did what you said you would do, that you've been faithful and true to us, that you love us, Jesus, you sacrificed your life for us. You gave it all. And so all to you we owe. God, we repent of times where we are more like the scribes, puffing up our own egos or reputations, thinking that we'll get it right if we do the right things. Won't you help us to be more like the widow, 
recognizing what you've done for us and allowing it to overflow in sacrificial giving to you in our words, in our actions, in our deeds, in our possessions. We want to show you our love and devotion. Amen.